Okay, our scripture reading today is in Acts chapter 4, 11 through 22. When you get that, please stand up. He is a stone which was rejected by you, the builder, but which becomes the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men for which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them and apparent to all who lived, and it is apparent to all who lived in Jerusalem and cannot be denied. But so that it will not spread and no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any men in this name. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be judged, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what has been. We cannot start speaking about what has been seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorified, glorifying in God for what had happened. For the men, the men was more than 40 years old, or the man was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle healing had been performed. Thank you. You can be seated. Sunday school this morning, every once in a while on Sunday school, actually fairly often, the guy that's teaching Sunday school and the guy that is preaching don't communicate with each other usually, and every once in a while I've got two things up and this is one of them morning, so thankful for that. Uh, what Ron mentioned this morning is that Joshua reminds them of victory, and then he admonishes them to hold fast to God, and in a nutshell, that's what this message this morning is going to be about, reminding us of victory that Jesus has accomplished and admonishing us to hold fast to God. Let me open with a word of prayer and we'll dig in here to Acts chapter 4, 11 through 22, those verses, those verses that um, Steve just read for us. It's on, Josh. Are you okay? I'm getting a signal. You ever watch Charlie Brown and you see the guy uh, or maybe the Flintstones and they're Schlepprock, right? <laughs> or Pigpen? When it comes to technology, I'm Schlepprock or I'm Pigpen, one of those things. <laughs> if I'm around and technology is involved, there's difficulties. Nothing. Okay, Josh, I'm going to go to this right here. Is that on? Okay. Get rid of this. Thanks, Lord. Let's pray. Father, that was a bit of a distraction, but not too bad. I pray that you would uh, remove all distractions from this time now. Help us to focus in on your word, each one of us that have come to this place this morning. I don't believe we're here by accident, Father. You've 
you've allowed us to be here, Father. I pray that you would open your word up to us in a wonderful way. Remind us of things that we've known for a long time. Teach us things we otherwise could not know. And um, just would you be pleased with what's proclaimed in our response to it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for each one that's here this morning. Thank you for our time in Sunday school. Thank you for that missions moment, what was shared there. Thank you for the work of the pregnancy uh, medical clinic, Father. And um, thank you for the songs we got to sing as well. Thank you for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts, Acts chapter 4, 11 through 22. The title of this message is the same title we had last week. You'll remember it was, was and is the church victorious and began with this verse out of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, which is upon this, a portion of that verse, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There's the whole verse. I say to you, you are Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I recognize and wanted to point out to you and wanted you to recognize that in this verse there are two combatants. There are two combatants. There, there is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. These two combatants are present there, but there's one that is victorious. One that is victorious. The church victorious is the focus of our message last week, this week, and next week as well. We're looking today again at Acts chapter 4, and it's a chapter that's filled with action and interaction and reaction to the things that are going on. Um, There's a lot happening in Acts chapter 3 and 4. It's one continuous narrative from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4. And last week we looked at the church victorious with regard to when it knows its purpose. And you may remember me quoting Mark Twain, who is quoted as saying, the two most important days in a person's life are the day they were born and the day they found out why. And I was relating that to the church because in early in Acts, on the day of Pentecost, there's the birth of the church. And I was saying to you that the church knows why. This first century church, Peter and John, the church, the people that are involved with the things of the church. They know why. They've been born. They know what it's all about. They're not confused. And I projected that out to the 21st century a little bit and had us just think for a minute or wanted us to think, wanted you to think for a minute because I did. Is that the case still today? Is the church unconfused about the purpose for which it was born? I wouldn't want us to be confused about that. I would want to remind us of the victory we have in Christ and the fact that the church is victorious in Christ. And then um, uh, Peter and John are are confronted because of things that happen in Acts chapter 3. There's this man that is healed, and there's confusion about who healed that man. And Peter and John have to tell the people it wasn't our power that did it. It was in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. And from there, Peter begins to preach this sermon. And out of that sermon comes this confrontation. There are some people... Uh, that are not happy with Peter and John proclaiming the things that they are proclaiming through the mouth of Peter. And I'd ask us to just consider those things just briefly, just to kind of reset the stage of what we're looking at and what we're going to look at today. So they're confronted because of the things that happen in chapter 3, and Peter and John, they haven't held back, and they're not going to hold back on what it is they're proclaiming. But this initial confrontation comes from some folks in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Just look there. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Now, uh, the priests were, were threatened because this was a threat to their influence. I believe that to be the case. The captain of the temple guard was threatened by Peter and John and what they were proclaiming and what was going on there because of their responsibilities to keep peace in the temple area probably. And then the Sadducees were threatened by what Peter and John were proclaiming because of the thing they were proclaiming, which was the resurrection, the resurrection that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that because Jesus was raised, we one day too will be raised. I think that they were, they, they, they touch on that a little bit. They were teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the Sadducees, 
and it's not originally with me, obviously, it's, I've heard it a long time ago, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. That's, it, it messed with their mind to think that someone would teach that there was a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in anything supernatural, and now they're confronted with it. They are confronted with a supernatural, um, I wouldn't even say healing, because this man was born crippled. This man is given the ability to walk. It is a supernatural thing they're confronted with, and they're confronted with this supernatural teaching about the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus has been raised to life. And uh, now, morning comes. If you look with me in Acts 4, 5, and 6, on the next day, now, now Peter and John are put in prison till the next day. On the next day, their rulers and their elders and scribes were gathered together at Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent or the high priest's family. Morning comes, and there they are before the Sanhedrin. And think about this. They're probably standing in the exact same place Jesus was not too many weeks ago. When Peter and John are there watching Jesus be on trial, and Peter's there watching that happen, and he's cowering to the point of denying Jesus three times. They're standing in that same spot, and they are being confronted by some of the same individuals. I think it's important to point that out because of the confidence that Peter and John are about to express or the confidence they have now. It really does speak to the indwelling Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But they're probably standing in the same place Jesus did and um, before some of the same men that Jesus was standing before. And in verse 7 of the same chapter, Acts uh, 4, 7, when they had placed him in the center and they began to inquire by what power and what name have you done this, this question that they asked them is a question that has a contempt behind it. Uh, in, 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 there's a guy here that knows Greek better than I do, but in the Greek construction of this language, of this sentence, there is this contempt behind it. Ye did this. There is this you know, why did you do this kind of a thing? And they call it this. They healed this man that was a cripple, and it's this. Why did you do this? It's, it's like that. It's a contemptuous question they're asking. They're not pleased with Peter and John in any way. And then Peter, in verse 8, addresses them in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit, but notice he begins with the respect that's due their office. He does not disrespect their position as the rulers of the people. And then he just states the facts in verse 9. Basically, my words to what he says is, What you ask in a contemptuous way is a kindness done for a crippled man. It's very possible that some of these men that are questioning Peter and John put alms into this man's hands or into his bucket or however he gathered alms. When he begged alms, some of these people that are questioning Peter and John probably contributed to this man's welfare financially from time to time. They recognize him. They can't deny it's the same guy. And then in verse 10, um, Peter opens up with this powerful proclamation of the church or of the, of truth, rather. This powerful proclamation of the truth is what I want to say. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. It's a powerful proclamation of truth. The church, the first century church, preached a crucified Christ. A Christ that died on the cross and was buried and rose again. A risen Savior and a living, a now living Savior. In that one verse, there's everything we need to know about Jesus. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. It's a powerful proclamation of truth concerning Jesus. And a bodily resurrection is preached there from the start, from the beginning of the church. 
And this just blows up the Sadducees' presuppositions they have. Their theological presuppositions are there's no resurrection from the dead. And this just blows that up. They don't back down, Peter and John. And then in verses 11 and 12, there's just more powerful proclamation of truth. And it's about the name of Jesus. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John are exhibiting faithfulness to the message they have been given and fearlessness in giving it. The church is victorious when it knows its purpose. That's where we were last week. Today, what I want to share with you is the church is victorious through the presence, through the presence of God. Well, certainly it's true that God is omnipresent. There is nowhere we can flee from His presence. The Bible teaches that. But I'm speaking of what is called His uh, manifest present, or when He makes His presence known. In the Old Testament, there's many examples of that. What come, came to my mind was Abraham when he saw the burning bush, this manifest presence of the living God. And his presence in the church in these early chapters of Acts grabs our attention, doesn't it? To see God at work in these early chapters of Acts, it grabs our attention. It's meant to do that. It's evidence of a living Savior. And then in verse 13... It's a very familiar verse in, in Christianity. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And I got to thinking, I wonder how many messages have been pre preached from just that one verse. But Peter and John in that verse 13, can you recognize that? Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John they under and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Peter and John had the indescribable blessing of having been physically present with the Lord. But the truth is, for us, we as believers have a relationship with that same Jesus. We have a relationship with someone we have never seen. We have a relationship with someone we have never seen. And it is Peter himself that acknowledges some of the realities of this in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. What amazing words spoken by Peter. Words that connect every believer to Jesus and to each other. That connect 21st century believers with 1st century Peter and John. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Amen, right? And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. We experienced that when we sung that simple song this morning. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it was the Apostle Paul who has an encounter with Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, and he heard an audible voice. He heard an audible voice, and years later he writes in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. He says other things there within that context, but he says that. I want to know Christ. And I just include that verse to recognize that it is an ongoing relationship we have with Jesus. It is an ongoing relationship we have. It ought to be a growing one for individual believers. And then corporately, with regard to the church, in Revelation 1.13, we see that it's Jesus who walks among the churches there. And just a side note momentarily, John writes to the seven churches, and it stands out to me just recently that the church in Jerusalem is not on that list. I think he's writing after the fall of Jerusalem. That's the point. But Jesus is pictured in, in Revelation 1 as the one who is in the middle of the lampstands. The lampstands are representative of the churches in Revelation 1.20 
there's Jesus standing in the midst of the churches. Jesus walks among the churches. He's aware of what goes on, and he's interested, and he's present within the church. Now that blows me away, and I don't know if you've thought about that recently, but that would mean that Jesus is present in this local body. Let that just sink in a minute. The Lord is present in His church. Those churches in Revelation, they're individual churches, and He's present in each one of them. He walks among those lampstands. So let's pick it up today, back in verse 11 now. Acts 4, this is just all that, just preview, and to bring us to where we're at today. The church is victorious through the presence of God. That's what we're focused on today. And His presence is recognizable. His presence is recognizable. Verses 11 through 13. And to touch on verse 13 just a minute before we go back to verses 11 and 12, what is obvious from verse 13 is that the presence of God in the church is recognizable even to unbelievers. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They're making a connection. They see their confidence, and they are amazed at it, and they make the connection, these men have been with Jesus. The manifest presence of the Lord among His church has amazed and temporarily One commentator I was reading said it temporarily, I'm adding the word temporarily, but he used the word paralyzes them. They're paralyzed. They don't know what to do with these guys. They don't know what to do with Peter and John. And notice just in that first part of verse 13, now as they observe the confidence of Peter and John, well, there it is. That's the quality that is observable and recognizable, this boldness or courage, or confidence. What does God say to Joshua? Only be strong and courageous. And what does Joshua say to the people at the end of the book? We just looked at it this morning. Be very courageous. Because God is, God is in it, right? And, and here it is. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit has made these men very courageous. That's the quality that they see. Uh, in 2 Timothy 1.7, says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And, Timothy, and Paul goes on to say to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Peter and John are displaying that same spirit of power in word and deed. They're powerful in word and they're powerful in deed. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And Peter extends his hand. And the man gets up and walks, leaps. And they're powerful in love for this cripple man and for every person they're speaking to. You can hear the love in their heart for the people they're speaking to. And self-discipline. They're not retreating. They're not running. It wasn't that long ago Peter would have bolted out off the scene, right? He'd have said, I am out of here. But he's not. The presence of God in his church is recognizable because of their standing in Christ. What I mean is they're not con- they, they're not confidence. They're not bold. They're not courageous. It's not a self-confidence they have. Taking us back to verse 11 and 12, okay? Verse 11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. I should have let you know this morning when we started, I meant to, that we were going to turn to one place and we're going to do that now. Psalm 118. I'll give you a minute to get there. Would you turn to Psalm 118? Because that's what Peter's quoting here. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. 
Psalm 118, when you get there, we'll start at verse 19. Okay, Psalm 118:19. Listen to these words. And just remember what's gone on, right? There was a crippled man sitting outside a beautiful gate, and Peter and John walk up and he's asking for alms. And Peter says, "Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk." And he puts his hand into Peter and John's hand, and then he leaps to his feet. And he goes leaping and dancing and praising the Lord into that, in through that beautiful gate, okay? Now look at these words. And, and think about this. Psalm 118 is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born, before this event. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. And you have become my salvation, the stone. Here it is. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Isn't that powerful language? This is what, this is just what took place back here. And notice something else, too. I want you to know something else. This is the last of the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms. They knew this psalm verbatim. They knew it word for word. They would say it and sing it at least a couple times a year to one another. It was an amphenotal. I don't know, how do you say amphenotal? They would say, one group would sing a part of it, and then another group would answer back with another part of it. It would have been beautiful. It would have been beautiful to hear. They know these words. When Peter says in Acts 4, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Their mind would have went to Psalm 118, and they know these verses by heart. And they just watch this man come leaping and praising the Lord into the temple. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, and I don't know how to tie the knots together with regard to that, but it is beautiful, isn't it? It is to me. Or tie the ends together, not the knots, the ends. Again, this is sung on feast days and committed to memory, recited verbatim, word for word. This crippled man was just yesterday sitting outside the gate called Beautiful and given the ability to walk, and he comes leaping through the gate and praising God. So Peter and John don't have self-confidence. They have confidence in the solid rock in the firm foundation, in the truths of Scripture. They have this confidence in God, a God-given confidence in God because they're standing on the solid rock, the one that the rulers or the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone, the capstone. God's plan of redemption is marvelous in our eyes. I can, re I can think back. I can't think of the exact time, but I can remember the emotion that came over me the first time I read that Psalm 118 for myself and saw, this is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. Boy, it just thrilled my soul. Just thrilled my soul. God's plan of redemption is marvelous. So they have a confidence in the truths of Scripture, and they have a confidence in the person of Christ. Look at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I know that's a different translation, but that's the one I have it memorized in. No one else, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There's a singular Savior in that verse. There's a singular Savior and a universal need. A universal need. A singular Savior by which we must be saved. Christianity does, Christianity does have an inclusive message. 
but an exclusive means of salvation. An exclu- there is an exclusivity. There's one Savior. There's not multiple names. There's not multiple ways to God. Jesus said so himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's, it's only him. There's no other name. And what a word it must have been for these guys that are questioning them. The man you just crucified is your Savior. And he's a living Savior, and you can trust him today. They not only, not only bring the word that would bring conviction, they bring the word that would bring their salvation. Again, Christianity does have an inclusive message but it has an exclusive means of salvation. There's only one Savior. And in, in, verse, in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven. This blessed me. I hope it blesses you. We're going to run through chapter 3 and chapter 4 a little bit here and just consider the name of Jesus for a minute, okay? This was last minute in my prep time, so I hope this blesses your heart like it does mine. Just go back to chapter 3 for a minute because the name of Jesus is everywhere. It's all Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are all about the name of Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Look at the same chapter, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. Here's another name for Jesus. His servant, Jesus, right? Look at verse 14. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One. These are names for Jesus, the Holy and Righteous One. Verse 15. But put to death... you. you You let a murderer go in his place, verse 15, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name, it's faith in his name, it is his name, it is the name of Jesus, rather, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And a faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 18, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Another name for Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Uh, Verse 20, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Heaven must receive him for a time. I read the wrong verse. I read 21. Verse 20. And he may, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. That's the verse I meant to read. Verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. In your seed. Speaking of Jesus, right? Chapter 4, verse 2 being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This resurrection that we have the hope of, it's in Jesus. In verse 7, they ask, by what name have you done this? Again, we've just been through verse 10. It's the name of Jesus. Verse 11 uh, he's the stone which was rejected. In verse 12, it's all about the name of Jesus. And in verse 17, there's this opposition to his name. But so that you will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any longer in this name. That's the hang-up. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name we proclaim. That I I started off with uh, last week, and again today, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I recognize there are two combatants, one victorious. The combatants are combating over that. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. And he's the Savior. At his birth, 
Actually, before his birth, in Matthew 121, Joseph was told to give him that name. Give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. His name means Savior. Savior. We got off the point a little bit here, but the point today is the presence of God, the presence of God in the church is recognizable to an unbelieving world when the when the church is faithful to the message, when the church is faithful to the message. The presence of God is recognizable because of their confidence in Christ. Verse 13, And they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And we can make that connection easy enough. Time spent with Jesus in prayer, in His Word, in remembrance, some of those things were mentioned this morning in Sunday school. In quiet meditation on his word, in, in service, in his sufferings. But how often do we need reminding that we can't take shortcuts with regard to our time spent with Jesus? How often do we need reminding of that? There's no shortcuts there. I don't know how many times since coming to faith in Jesus, I've been reminded of that very thing, and every time I'm thankful. Every time. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you don't need those reminders. I know I do. It's true, He's always present with us, but we need to be intentional and make time for Him. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. No substitute for time spent with Jesus. The church is still victorious when it manifests the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So the question comes for myself and for you, how much time have you and I spent with the Lord? Yesterday, last week, this morning, And what if you added 15 minutes of your day just for him? Now, I'm not talking about the fact that while I'm working, I can be, I can be rejoicing with the Lord while I'm working. I've done that. I can be praising his name while I'm driving down the road. But I mean time set aside just for him. No cell phone distraction, no traffic distraction, no text distraction, no other voice distraction. Time set aside just for him. Imagine if I got in the car with Cindy. You don't have to imagine it very much. I don't have to imagine very hard because it happens from time to time. We'll get in the car, and I know I have to answer a text, and I go to pick up my phone. She goes, we just got in the car together. We're finally alone. Put your phone down. It makes the point, doesn't it? The time spent alone with Jesus. What if you just added, whatever your time allotment is, what if you just added 15 minutes a day to that? undistracted time with the Lord. I wasn't planning on saying this. I can remember uh, going through a, a Navigator series, and I was told by the time we get through the second book, I think it was, we're going to do this thing. We're going to spend an, a, half a, day of, a half a day with the Lord in prayer. And I thought, what in the world are you talking about? half a day in prayer that's it was one of the most exciting times in my christian life i after that half a day of prayer i thought i'm going to do this once a week i didn't it was phenomenal but what just 15 minutes a day what if you whatever your time allotment for the lord is what if you added 15 minutes a day to that i don't think you could go wrong Cindy and I are planning a trip back to Michigan uh, end of March. We want to have, I want to have, I particularly want to have some one-on-one -on -one time with each one of our grandchildren. That's my plan, to make time to do that. And I don't have to explain to any of you, not that you're asking an explanation, I mean it this way, I don't have to explain to any of you the reasons why that would be important or valuable, right? You understand that just naturally. Just naturally you understand why that would be important, some one-on-one -on -one time. And, and the time that they get with Grandpa, there's a value in that, right? I hope. Lord willing, there'll be a value in that. Same with our relationship with the Lord. 
unfiltered, uncluttered, unmessed with time with the Lord. I asked Ron, I let him know I'd be sharing something about yesterday. This is it, Ron. (laughs) Yesterday, Ron and Rick and I got to go to the rescue mission. What a blessing that was. Uh, It's just our second time there. And um, Judy, thank you so much for your your labor there, and, and Jason as well. Just made me think of you guys even all the more when we go and pray for you more uh, effectively, I hope. But um, you go to a rescue mission. It's, I've been to a rescue mission before this one, and, um, you know, there's commotion and stuff. But when Ron started singing, the atmosphere in that room changed. Rick shaking his head, yeah. A change came over the room over individuals in that room, a guy sitting in front of me reached his hand back and grabbed his gal's hand. Just beautiful. And then Ron began to preach. And what a testimony of the manifest presence of God in the life of an individual believer. And when you put a few people together like that, what do you have? You have a local church. That's effective for the Lord. The church is victorious through the presence of God. I want to encourage each one of us, add 15 minutes a day to whatever your time allotment is for the Lord, just for Him. Just for Him. I'll let you know how I'm doing next week, okay? I'm going to add 15 minutes a day. Just two verses before we go into the I think the next point. In Psalm 60, which is written in another dispensation for another battle and for another time, but Psalm 60, verse 4 says this, You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of truth. In Psalm 60, verse 12, as that psalm closes out, the psalmist writes this, Through God we shall do valiantly. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be be displayed because of truth. Christ is our banner. Christ is our banner. Are you growing in your relationship with him? The church is victorious through the very presence of God. And the presence of God in the church through the Holy Spirit is undeniable. It's undeniable. Verse 14 And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They got nothing to say. The presence of God in the church through the Holy Spirit is undeniable. God's presence expressed through the church. It can't be denied. This man standing before them, they are temporarily paralyzed by the presence of the Lord. Verse 15, they're confused as what to do, but... When they had ordered them to, but when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. They're confused as what to do. They have to have a conference to think it over. What an impact there is when God shows up, hey? What an impact there is when God shows up, and the presence of God shows up when God's people are in tune with the Spirit, when they're when they're pursuing a relationship with their Lord. Verse 16, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The fact was indisputable. The power of a changed life is irrefutable. It's indisputable. How many testimonies have you heard of someone that was running after their own ideas I've heard testimonies in this, in this very body, people that were pursuing their own life, and God got a hold of them. They got saved. Testimony of a changed life. It's, it's indisputable. It's undeniable. In verse 17, they can't explain it, but they want it to stop. That's what they know. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any longer, or not to, to know, let, let, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Now, they could have investigated that for themselves, but they don't. 
The undeniable evidence of a living Savior and His presence manifests through the Holy Spirit in His church, or in His church through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's gotten under their skin a bit, and they can't figure out. They have their worldview in this tidy little box, and this steps all over it. And do you ever have that happen when you're witnessing to someone? <laughs> Isn't it a joy to be able to come? Someone has their worldview in this tidy little box, and you share Jesus with them, and you realize, boy, that's got them in a spin a little bit, but it's a good thing, right? And then you come back the next time, and the next time, and the next, and this softening begins to happen. You see people get saved that way. Again, they could have investigated it for themselves, verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All they had to do was produce the body, but they couldn't, right? They just had to go find Jesus' body. They could have ended it there, but they didn't. They should have sought the truth. Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen: you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. They're just commanding it to stop. And what are they confronted with? Here they are trying to be bold, trying to muster up something, trying to come at Peter and John to get them to stop. And what are they confronted with? Even greater boldness. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. What a safe place to be. I can't figure this out for you. All I know is I'm going to go on serving the Lord. You be the judge. You figure it out. We're going to keep on proclaiming Him. They put the responsibility, their own responsibility before God back on them. It's not a bad thing to do. To leave behind, leave people behind, or how do I want to word this? Not a bad, I'm going to word it the way I wrote it. Not a bad thing to leave behind with people an undeniable presence of God and a sense of their own responsibility before God. And just as I thought about verse 19, I thought, how often is the church silenced today? You can preach anything else to anyone else, just don't preach Jesus. Not this Jesus anyway, right? You can preach a Jesus that is no Jesus at all, and that's okay, but not the real Jesus. Last point, the presence of God in their lives through the empowering of the Holy Spirit is for them, for the believers, motivational. Verses 19 through 20 is motivational. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. I struggled with the word motivational. I wanted all these to rhyme because I thought it would be an easy thing to memorize. The church is victorious through the presence of God, and the presence of God is recognizable, and it's undeniable, and it's motivational. But I stopped on the word motivational because I thought of the bad rap the term motivational gets with regard to motivational speakers, right? Motivational speakers maybe give the word motivational a bad rap, but it's not always bad. Especially when you see that faith motivates you. It's something Adriana mentioned this morning. When she was speaking of her father, I hope I'm accurately quoting her. You see that faith, you see that kind of faith, and it motivates you. And it motivates you. The presence of God in their lives through the empowering of the Holy Spirit is motivational for them. They're motivated to continue. Two combatants, one victorious. But I recognize, as Joshua recognized, as we recognize, the battle belongs to the Lord. I will build my church. He will do it. And they're obeying a direct command given them by Jesus. In Acts 1.8, 
but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit will come on upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. They're obeying a direct command from Jesus. They're motivated by the truth all of them had seen and heard. The, I, let me say that again. They're motivated by the truth of all that they had seen and heard. Verse 20, For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. There was probably a time in your Christian life, there was in mine when I was first saved, I couldn't stop speaking about Jesus. And then that kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit, right? And I won't talk about where it's at right now, but I'm just saying to you, they couldn't stop speaking about Jesus because of their relationship with him. They recognized they were in relationship with a living Savior. You just can't help to speak of him. What a joyful place to be and what a joyful type of person to be around. You know, there, there may be other and less productive, less joyful motivations for proclaiming him other than the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. In fact, Paul points that out. Some preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Well, what do I care as long as Christ is preached, he says, right? But what a joy to preach Christ from the right motivation. In verse 21, they threaten him further. And I just don't want you to miss the confidence of Peter and John there. When they had threatened them further, that's what it says. They threatened them further. They let them go on the account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. And all the people are motivated as well. By the very presence of God, it's causing people to praise God because God was at work among them. They attribute it all to God. They see God at work among them. They attribute it all to God. They find themselves praising God together. And one last, well, two last things. First one is this, verse 22. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. I just want to say with that, it's never too late for someone to begin with Jesus have new life in Christ. Talking today about seeing the church victorious through the manifest presence of God. And I'm going to call an audible, as Ron mentioned this morning, and then go back to just those things he shared at the end of Sunday school or in partway through Sunday school. Joshua reminds them of victory. And we have victory in Christ. The church is victorious. And he admonished them to hold fast to God. That's, that sums up this message completely. I want to remind you of the victory we have in Jesus and admonish each of us to hold fast to God like a burr on a shaggy dog. <laughs> With that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for your people. Remind us of these things this week. Uh, thank you for how you line things up. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.